We look at your word. I pray that you give us insight. I pray that you would use even this time in conforming us into the image of your son. We thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would be my strength and my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, if you'd open up to the letter of 2 Timothy. The letter of 2 Timothy. Probably one of the most impactful letters I've received, I think, over the last 20 years came during the, the craziness of COVID. I was, uh, isn't it crazy how you can, uh, you can have a hundred encouraging words and you can be discouraged by one person and you tend to focus on the discouragement and not the hundred? You ever like that? So sometimes uh, you express these kind of things and they're not the reality of, uh, of the norm or the, of the rhythm of life. But I had, I had faced a lot of, at least from a few people, some criticism of the way things were going and some of the, the decisions we had made during COVID. And I was really down and I was up here on a Sunday afternoon and discouraged about an encounter I had with an individual and uh, just really down. I was having a pity party, and nobody showed up but me. And uh, there was a letter that uh, somebody had put on my desk because they had checked the mail. And I hadn't seen it. And uh, I picked it up, and I noticed immediately it was from Texas. And I was, that's interesting. And I opened up the letter, and lo and behold, it was from uh, one of my faithful and beloved youth leaders in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a gentleman by the name of Sam Severe, who bought me breakfast on a regular basis. And Sam was a quiet man. He wasn't, a, uh, he wasn't out, and uh, he, he would be one of my Disciple Now leaders when we'd have Disciple Now, and I always laughed because I was like, how is this happening? Sam would have the craziest group of seventh graders you could imagine, and he was a retired engineer from Sandia Labs. And, and I would look at Sam, and he'd look at me, and he had this look on his face like, help? And, but Sam was a dear friend, and I had been looking to try to find a way to get in touch with him because after he had retired, he was working while he served with me in the ministry, but after he had retired, he relocated to Texas. I couldn't find him. I'd look for him on Facebook about once every year. Couldn't find him. I tried to find him other places, and lo and behold, there he was on my desk writing me a letter. And he wrote me a letter, and it was an encouragement, and it was dear, and it was heartfelt, and tears got into my eyes, and it was the most timely letter I think I've ever received, one of the most timely. It reminds me of what we are looking at when we look at the book of 2 Timothy. It's different. The context is much different. While Sam was a dear friend and brother in the Lord, this is unique in its own way. Paul was writing his last words in a dungeon in Rome to a young preacher that God had brought in his life about 16, 17 years prior. And Paul had spent time with him. Paul had ministered with him. Paul was a spiritual mentor to him. Timothy was a child in the faith to him. And Timothy was left after serving with Paul in Ephesus. Timothy was left there to pastor the church. I remember years ago, my dad said to me, he said, Stephen, did you know there's a city in Michigan named Hell? Hell, Michigan. He said, how would you like to be the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Hell? <laughs> and, and while we laugh at that, there's a lot of churches in difficult places. And Ephesus would have been one of those difficult places. And while there was a dear group of Christians assembled at that body of Ephesus, they were in the midst of craziness. They were in the midst of perversion. They were in the midst of pagan idols. And Paul wanted Timothy to gain encouragement. 
This was his last chance, so to speak, to send his child in the faith and spur him on. And in this letter, we gain the admonishment of a spiritual father to his son of what matters. You know, you look at this book, and you see key words throughout the letter. I'll give you the words that are the most commonly used in 2 Timothy. And I, if there's a hint here, if you ever want to study a book, find out where the words that are the most commonly used, and you'll find out what the theme is. And here's the common words. Suffer and endure hardship. Persecuted. Persecutions. Gospel. Word. Sound. Endure, faith, ashamed, grace. You put those words on a page, you can start to get the idea of what he's writing about. He's writing Timothy, wanting him to be aware of the hardships he will endure, the persecutions he will face, the sufferings he must suffer. But in the midst of it, he wants him to be a godly preacher. And he wants him to preach the sound word, he wants him to live out of his faith, proclaim the faith unashamed as he teaches the grace of God. And that's what this letter is all about. Three ways we're going to approach the opening of this letter today. The first we're going to look at is the backdrop. The backdrop. And what we're going to see on the backdrop is something that will help us to understand what is taking place within the context of the letter. We need to know, immediately we see that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. What do we learn about Paul here? He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice here that he's an apostle. If we were going to look at the life of Paul and we were going to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts, where would we go? We would start back at the, the story of the death of Stephen. And we would learn about Paul and how he was ambushing the church and he was he was causing people to suffer persecution. And we read about his life, and we read about his conversion experience as we go from Acts 8 to Acts 9, and we read about this Damascus Road encounter with the living Christ, and we begin to see that Jesus calls him to be a minister of grace. We see his ministry begin. We see the time away that he had in the desert where God ministers to him, and Jesus disciples him. And we learn in the book of Acts that here's this man who now is an apostle of Jesus Christ, who actually saw the risen Christ on that road to Damascus. We read about his first, his second, his third missionary journey. We're now at the end, and now things are much different than they were before. If you remember, there was a prison experience that he had in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we read about a prison experience that was like a house arrest. In the book of Acts chapter 28 and verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. But now he's in a prison that's much different. He's in a prison that is much different, and now he's in a place that is not like house arrest where people just come and go as they please. Now he's in a place it says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 16, look at verse 16 of chapter 1. It says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He's now in chains. We read some hints in chapter 4 as to possibly what happened to bring him to these chains. There was a guy that betrayed him, a guy that was out to get him named Alexander the coppersmith. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. And we read about this man 
He did him great harm, it says in verse 14 of chapter 4. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And then we see a man that is in a prison, and he is going to use language in chapter 4 that's really fascinating. He's going to encourage and call Timothy to come see him three times. He says in verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. In verse 13 of chapter 4, he speaks about his coming again. And notice what he asked him to bring. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the char- parchments. You get the sense, and many scholars have commented on chapter 4, that based off of what we know about one of the prisons in Rome, that very likely Paul's in a dungeon, he's cold. He needs his coat. He especially needs that coat before winter. And then he says in verse 21, again, the word, come to me. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Putin's and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. And then he says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. We'll look at this in chapter 4. But you know what's fascinating? You remember John Mark? And there was a time where Paul was like, all right, I'm not taking you, buddy. Yeah. He had done something that had offended Paul. He had done something that let Paul down. And now, as a result of a faithful brother named Barnabas, who had been in the life of John Mark, he is now useful to the apostle Paul. Love this. But what is the backdrop here? He's in prison. He's in his last days. He was in prison, and the Roman ruler was a guy by the name of Nero. If you don't know much about Nero, he's a notorious leader. Think about the worst examples in history, and Nero would be on the same list. People put Nero on the same list as Hitler. People put Nero on the same list as any notorious, ruthless, selfish, narcissistic, killing ruler. That's who he was. And you say, why is that important? Well, it gives you some backdrop of what is taking place. I, I had, um, was reading a little bit about the backdrop. We learned in church history class that Nero had Rome burnt. There's a backstory to that. But the thing that's crazy is when it burned, it wasn't just the wooden shacks. It was the stone mansions of the rich. The public buildings, as one source says, the magnificent pagan temples and shrines were gutted. Tacitus, the Roman historian, wrote, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was a result of an order by Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Nero blamed it on the Christians. He had selfish goals in why he burnt the city but the Christians stood in the midst of the blame. And so now we are looking at a city burnt by its leader, Christians that were called to be blamed, and the Apostle Paul in a prison. And when we get to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, we're going to literally look at Paul as he goes before the preliminary hearing of the court of Nero. That's where we're at. That's the backdrop of this letter And can you imagine a young man named Timothy who received his first letter from Paul four years earlier? Can you imagine the challenges of of ministering in Ephesus when the known world at that time is facing persecution and what takes place in Rome is going to be a snapshot of what the climate's going to be in other large cities across the Mediterranean? And now, can you imagine the encouragement to get these words from a faithful brother in the Lord, Paul. And when did Timothy come on the surface? He comes on the surface in the book of Acts. Paul was a missionary 
And Paul went throughout the Mediterranean world, and he went to a place called Lystra. And in Acts chapter 14, he goes to Lystra. And we know that he does ministry there, but we never see the name Timothy referenced in Acts 14. But then we get to Acts chapter 16. On his next trip through Lystra, we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. I love this. He comes to Lystra, Derby and Lystra, and there's a disciple there named Timothy. Think about it. God works in mysterious ways. That this part of the world didn't know the gospel. Paul went on his first journey. He went to Lystra. There were converts. There were people that the Holy Spirit worked in. And now, lo and behold, he comes through in Acts 16, and there amongst them, in their midst, the fruit of the initial labors that he had been a part of in Acts chapter 14 is a convert by the name of Timothy. And God raised up this young man out of a pagan world. We'll see in a moment that he had saved his grandmother and saved his mom. And now here's this young man, and God had set him apart to be a minister. And God had set him apart to be a faithful companion to the Apostle Paul. And God had set him apart to be the pastor in Ephesus. I tell you, you may be thinking, how can God use me? You may be thinking, how can God use me? God is glorified by the proclamation of the gospel, and God is glorified to save sinners, and we are simply vessels. We can't save anyone. The Holy Spirit has to do a work that we can't perform. But what we're called to do is be faithful witnesses. We're called to speak the truth into people's lives. We're called to plant the seeds. And we don't get to see the results, but the amazing fruit of what took place in the backstory of Timothy was Timothy became one of the great leaders in the early church. You see, Timothy was a faithful companion to Paul. If you look and you want to write this down, another key passage to be mindful of as we walk through the letter of 2 Timothy is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, um, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not, do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. And then he says in verse 17, as he writes to Corinth, that is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. I love this because think about it. I don't know, you know, now I didn't know what I was going to do uh, degree-wise until really late in the game. I, I'm so impressed. So many of our young students are so ambitious and you ask them in ninth grade, what do you want to do? And they tell you, can you imagine? I wonder what Timothy wanted to do in grade school. I bet he had no idea that God had changed for a change of plans for his desire and his life. I tell you, hold your ambitions loosely and never lose sight of the call that God may have on your life in Christian service. Never lose sight that God took a herder of the sycamore figs in Israel and Judah and brought him to the northern neighbor of Israel to be a prophet. You think about it. Can you imagine when Amos got a call from God? I'm a herder of sycamore figs, God. What do you mean? And God was calling him not to be a herder of sycamore figs any longer, but to be a prophet to boldly proclaim the gospel. And God works mysteriously this way. 
God takes out young, aspiring lawyers, young, aspiring doctors, young, aspiring engineers, and puts a call on their life to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, don't ever get your plans so neatly tight-packed that you lose sight of the call of God on your life. Timothy had a call, and now this call extended to Corinth. In Philippians, the whole area knows about him. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus is in Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He says in verse 20 of Philippians 2 of Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then he says in verse 22, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You get the idea. I came across a list in a resource, Exalting Christ Commentary Series. I highly recommend it to you. And it was several deal, several bullet points. And I didn't do the slides right today, so I can't put them up there, but I'm going to give them to you. Let me give you some backdrop. 80-50, Timothy ministers with Paul and Silas in Philippi. 80-51, Paul flees Berea. Timothy and Silas continue the work. 80-51, Timothy rejoins Paul in Athens, brings the work to Macedonia. 80-51-52, Timothy returns to Thessalonica to encourage the new believers. 80-52, Timothy joins Paul in his ministry in Corinth, beginning bringing the word of progress in Thessalonica. 80-54-56, Timothy comes to Ephesus to work with Paul during Paul's three-year ministry. 80-56, Paul sends Timothy with the 1 Corinthians letter to the disordered church in Corinth. 80-57, Paul comes to Corinth in person, and from there he and Timothy write Romans. 80-60-62, Timothy is with Paul during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. 80-62, Paul goes to Ephesus and appoints Timothy as pastor. 80-62-64, Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus, AD 64, persecutions of the Christians in Rome following the great fire, AD 67, 17 years after we first met Timothy, Paul returns to Rome, is arrested, writes 2 Timothy from the Mamertine prison, AD 67, Paul's martyrdom in Rome. 2 Timothy, 17 years later, Paul's urging and exhortation for Timothy to continue the work. I mean, these are dear brothers in the Lord. Can you imagine the war stories they had in ministry? I used to love when I was a kid, when my dad's best friends in ministry would go out to eat. One, because it was always a good place to eat. Two, I love to hear their stories. And these were dear brothers in the Lord that knew how to laugh in the Lord, that had fun, that cared about each other. But they would get together and they would share about things that happened along the way. Can you imagine these two? Hey, do you remember what happened in Corinth? Do you remember what God did in Ephesus when we first arrived there? Do you remember Thessalonica and what all God did to open up their eyes? On and on and on, get a feel for the heart of this letter. This is not just a letter written to another guy in ministry. This is a man who had walked with Paul for many years of his life. And he's writing to him, encouraging him. So now we jump in to number two. Not only the backdrop, but we see what is common to Paul. And it's so rich, we see the blessings. The blessings. We see, let's look at the blessings that Paul gives Timothy in his opening greeting, he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and, and then he uses this phrase, I love it, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting phrase. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I agree with one person's account of this. They say this preposition, according to, defines the aim 
and the purpose of Paul's apostleship. Now think about that. What is your purpose and your aim, Paul? It's to proclaim the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. A life that only can be manifested because Jesus is the risen Christ. He is the risen Lord. It's, it's interesting because many people smarter than me believe that you see Jesus Christ, but you often see the phrase that we see here, Christ Jesus. And typically people say when you see the phrase Christ Jesus, it's speaking of the risen reality of God in Christ. The risen reality of Jesus. The risen reality that he's alive, that he rose from the dead. Now think about this and you remember in the gospel, I was looking at a, uh, I was pulling some verses about life and I was amazed at how many times the word life is used in the gospel of John. If you'd asked me that, I'd have messed up bad. You could have said under 20, under 30, I would have gotten it wrong and I had no clue. Page after page after page, John says things like, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 4.14, the water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says. John 6.33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. I mean, on and on and on. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And remember what's interesting about that passage is that when I think of eternal life, I usually think about the quantity of life, Right? But do you realize that when the Apostle John uses the phrase eternal life, he normally is not speaking about how long life will last. He's speaking about the quality of life and knowing the Son. That those who know Jesus have a quality of life because they've experienced an abundance of life. And in that life, they will live eternally it's speaking about a quality of life. Remember Paul in Colossians? It goes along with what he writes here. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the idea of the essence of my life is Jesus. He says in Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life. On and on and on, you see this life, the abundance of life, life everlasting. And, and Paul says that he was called by God to be an apostle and he's proclaiming the life-giving news of Christ. He's proclaiming. Now think about this. This even gets better. Uh, you remember, if you were with us on Sunday nights, we talked about this amazing reality theologians call union with Christ. Remember Paul uses that phrase, in him, with him. I mean, over and over, over a over hundred times. And, and think about it, when, when, when he uses that term, he's speaking about what does it mean for people that have now been saved and regenerated, what does it mean that we are in him and he is in us? The promise of the life that is in Jesus Christ. It gives me a different understanding of Philippians when Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection the life of Christ, the life that changed Paul, the life that influenced Paul, the life that enabled Paul. And he says here to Timothy as he opens up the letter, he speaks of that life according to his call as an apostle. But you know what? We see the blessings. I really believe that 
as Timothy opens up this letter right away, he's reminded, how did my spiritual father come to do what he did? He did it because he was called by God. And, and what was the purpose of God on his life? That he would proclaim the message of this life in the midst of deadness, in the midst of darkness, the midst of life. But then he goes on and he uses the ones that we're most common with. In verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I told you my basketball coach in college, he's like a, one of my spiritual mentors. And uh, man, so many times when we've talked at seasons of my life that were difficult, I remember when I, uh, I lost my dad, or I knew I was losing my dad. I'll never forget it. I, it was, uh, I was watching some NBA game at like 1230 at night, just sort of distracting myself. And I texted him and I said, coach, I need to talk. And he called me like 1230 at night. And I'll never forget because it was like we were talking and he wanted me to be reminded of, of, of these very same realities. He didn't use the same language, but he, he was speaking about the life and the power of Christ. I'll never forget that. He, he, he wanted to encourage me. And, and when you talk to someone who's a mentor and they want to encourage you, he would often send me texts and he would say, Barber, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Now think about that. It's not the common greeting, is it? It's a common greeting of Paul. But what if I send you a message right now and I say, hey, man, grace and peace? What does it remind you of? It's not just grace and peace that you experience one time. Oh, yeah, amazing grace. I remember when I was saved at VBS at nine years old. No, this is the, the blessing, the, the, the active blessing of the Christian. You live in a state of grace and peace. You live in a state of grace and mercy and peace. What would be the words that would ground Timothy? I can't imagine. Wouldn't it be fun to know what situations he was dealing with in Ephesus? I have a weird feeling he was dealing with something crazy. And I can't imagine when he first read this letter and right off the bat, the faithful voice who had walked with Christ all his converted life was now telling the young son in the faith, can you imagine how many times those guards heard grace and mercy and peace? But even more, how much a young son in the faith like Timothy had heard of Paul talking about these realities. Grace, mercy, and peace. I wrote down some thoughts about this grace. Grace is not just God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's transforming power. This grace, think with me, and, and this may be strange language to use, but this grace is a blessing of position. You may be like, what do you mean? Our position in the way that God sees us. How does God see you this morning? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're in a place of a blessing of position. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, I remember R.C. Sproul said one time, he said, you know, just as Jesus at the baptism, when the Father cried out, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, he said, now those in Christ Jesus can hear the same words from the Father. We are his beloved children in whom he's well pleased. Why? Because of the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. And now Paul says grace and peace, grace and peace. It's a blessing not just of position, but it's a blessing of ongoing grace. The grace to live, the grace and the power is fascinating because if you got your Bible, go over to chapter 2, verse 1. He uses this phrase, and it really... I think helps you understand an element of how he's using it with Timothy. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. I went through and looked at the commands in the book of 2 Timothy. What kind of things would Paul be telling this young preacher to do? Now, this is quite a list. I'm going to go quick, but I want you to get a, I want you to get a feel for it because it's going to help you understand the letter better. So we're just trying to plow through the intro here. But chapter 1, verse 8, share in suffering. Chapter 1, verse 13, follow the sound pattern of words. Chapter 1, verse 14, guard the good deposit, Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 1, be strengthened by grace. Verse 1, entrust to faithful others what you've learned. Verse 3, share in suffering, Timothy. Verse 7, think over what I say. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen. Verse 14, remember them of these things. Remind them of these things. Verse 15, do your best to present yourselves before God as a proved worker. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. 19, let everyone depart from iniquity. 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Verse 23, have nothing to do with ignorant and foolish controversies. Chapter 3, verse 1, understand last days will be difficult. Verse 5, avoid such people. Verse 14, continue what you've learned. Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Verse 4, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Verse 9, come to me soon. Verse 11, get Mark, bring him with you. Verse 13, when you come, get the cloak, the books, the parchments. Verse 15, beware of Alexander. Verse 19, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 21, do your best to become before winter. That's, that's quite a reminder list for Timothy to sum up what Paul is telling him to do, how in the world can he be faithful as a preacher in Jesus Christ to follow such a large command set? Grace to you, Timothy. I tell you what, don't ever lose sight of the grace of God in your life. The grace of God that enables people who are weary and broken to live the Christian life. He says grace not only you got this present position, if you're in Christ Jesus, God the Father sees you and sees the righteousness of his son that covers you. The grace of the present, God calls me to live the Christian life and gives me grace to live it because of the life of Christ. But not only that, the grace of the future. You remember Peter, fix your eyes on the grace that is yours to come. But then he uses another word, he uses the word mercy. Mercy, grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? Mercy is this idea of compassion, active pity that God has displayed to us in Christ Jesus. We now come before him by his grace and by his mercy and by his peace, I now have peace with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I have the ability with, to have peace with others. I now have the ability to let the peace of Christ rule in my hearts. All of this is because of what? Because of what God had did for Timothy in Christ Jesus. Because of what God had done for Paul on that road to Damascus. And all of you today that have trusted in Jesus Christ. You may not feel it, you may not understand it, but mysteriously, supernaturally, and authoritatively, God in Christ has given you an abundance of grace, mercy, and peace. But not only the backdrop, not only the blessings, but again, the way this letter involved, the beloved, who is the beloved? We've talked about him. He says in verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. And what do we learn about Timothy? He says in verse three, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Paul was recognizing the fact that there were people that had gone before him that had loved Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, to think that Abraham was justified by faith one of the patriarchs. Abraham was justified by faith. He obviously was one of the ancestors that Paul, I believe, would have been referring to. But Paul was cognizant of the fact that 
anyone that had gone before him that had lived godly was an individual who had experienced God's grace. God's grace. And here he says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. And, and this is remarkable. How do you live with a clear conscience? You need the life of God. You need the life of God. You need the grace in Jesus to live with the clear conscience. This phrase is used uh, over and over, um, the conscience part of it. You know, like 2 Corinthians, Paul says, our boast is the testimony of our conscience. In Acts 23.1, Paul says before the council that he had a good conscience. And you see that... Um, even in the first letter he wrote to Timothy, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, a clear conscience in chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 Timothy. But here is the opposite of a clear conscience, I think. You, you can get all the way to the place where when Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he uses that phrase over and over in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity, insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This morning, are you living with a clear conscience? You know, you think practically speaking, you can't live with a clear conscience when you're living with active sin just dwelling in your life. You can't. It's impossible. And, and, and we look back and we think, okay, how can a person keep themselves pure by according to the word? How can they walk with a clear conscience by looking to God's word and experiencing his grace by dealing with sin as it surfaces in our life? Because we're not talking about spiritual perfectionism. Remember John, the apostle said in 1 John, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And he even says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, it's in the present tense. It means the lifestyle of the Christian will be continuously confessing sin. So a clear conscience is not the absence of sin. It's dealing with sin in the present. It's confessing and repenting of our sins. It's living with God with a clear conscience because as the Spirit brings to mind and the Word brings to mind all that is sinful, by God's grace, I confess it. And he says, I remember your tears. I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Man, you talk about the Christian fellowship. You remember when Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders in Acts and they, they cried because they loved Paul and he was going to leave to go to Jerusalem and they thought, man, you're, you're going to die in Jerusalem. And, they, and there, and you think about it, he couldn't have just jumped on Delta and gotten back on an afternoon, you know, mid-afternoon flight. When he got on that ship, they realized unless God intervened in a strange way, they may never see his face again. And they wept. Why? Because of the uniqueness of what the Holy Spirit does to make us family. The uniqueness of the body of Christ. I know there's many examples where sadly that doesn't happen, but man, it, if you've ever experienced it, and I think so many of you have experienced it here, the warmth of, of Christian family, the warmth of Christian love, but you're talking now about something that goes even a layer deeper. You're talking about this minister and his companion, and you're talking about this young man in the faith. Think about it. He, he's there in Lystra, and he's following the Lord. He's young, and he's showing signs of following God's grace. And all of a sudden, Paul says, I think you need to go with me. It almost reminds you in a miniature version of what the disciples would have felt when they were called on the shores by, by Jesus. And now Timothy's on these, I mean, can you imagine? I don't know how old he was when he started this voyage with Paul, but can you imagine getting on these boats and thinking, where in the world are we going and what are we going to do? And all of this way, Paul had been there with him. And now Paul, looking back at Timothy, says, man, I remember your tears. I long to see you. He says, it's going to bring me joy if I see you. And then he says, I'm reminded 
of your sincere faith. You know what the opposite of sincere is? It's a person who's a hypocrite, where what you portray is not reality. Sincerity is when you portray something that's actually reflective of who you are. And he says, Timothy, you got a sincere faith. It's real. It's genuine. It's, it's used in so many different places. And he speaks about this faith. We don't have time to look at it. But he says, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Man, this is, this is amazing. He says, Timothy, um, Timothy was blessed by God with a godly grandmother. And don't you want to ask the question, when did Lois come to know the Lord? I don't know. But I, I think we, we could be in safe guessing ground to say something as a result of Acts 14. Lois had trusted Christ. Lois, we don't know. God works in mysterious ways. Remember, Paul goes into one city and, 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 and Jesus tells him, I've got many people. <laughs> I got many people in this city. We don't know how God had worked in the ancient world and how he'd sent his word out. But Lois loved the Lord, and Lois had impacted her daughter, Eunice. I tell you, I think we're in a day when people are seeking with all their might to destroy gender. They're seeking to rip apart the idea that we're created in the Imago Dei. We're created in the image of God. And we're created by his hand uniquely in, in a creative way of God where he designed some male and some female. And within this and with the, all the wrong forms of feminism that you could ever imagine, there is a growing influence in young women in our culture that to be a loser is to be a mom that you need to pursue a career, you need to forget anything to do with motherhood. And I, I read a statistic the other day where now a great percentage of people in the bracket of like 16 to 25, a lot of them don't even want kids. You know why? The kids are a burden. Kids stand in the way of my dreams. What happens? We lose sight of the creator. We embrace our own way. And what takes place? In part of our rebellion, we reject not only the creative order of God, we reject his plans for us, we reject all forms of reality. But you know what happened with these precious ladies? God used them as moms to influence their kids in a way that impacted the kingdom of God. And what the world would look at as insignificant and completely ridiculous in the eyes of God, what a treasure Lois was to Eunice. Lois was to Timothy. Eunice was to Timothy. And he says, there a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's where we're going to pick up next time. The backdrop, the blessings, the beloved. The backdrop, the blessings, the beloved. But I want to leave you with three applications to chew on as we close. This morning, praise God for his work in you. Because we read about his work in Paul, his work in Timothy. Praise God for that, but praise God for what he's done in you. What's your story? Who are the faithful people that God put in your life to share with you the truth? You know, you think about Paul was a guy that he wasn't looking for Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was running from Christ. But what do we see about God's grace? His sovereign grace pursues the, the, those that would have nothing to do with them. Timothy called by his grace. So praise God for his work, not only in Paul and Timothy, but in your own life. Secondly, I want to ask you a question. We read that, that opening that many people are so quick to run through to get into verse 5 and 6, but I want to ask you a question. Are you living out of the reality of who Jesus is? His life, his grace, his mercy, 
his peace. I challenge you, even this afternoon or when you get a chance to be alone and think, I want you to consider how is the grace of God impacting my life, the mercy of God impacting my life, the peace of God impacting my life, the life of Christ impacting my life. Chew on it. You realize that Timothy could not minister effectively if he lost sight of the life, the grace, the mercy, and the peace of Christ. And we can't live effectively as Christians if we lose sight of it. Thirdly, are you living out of the reality of the family of God? Are you cherishing the special relationships that God has brought in your life? looking after spiritual fathers and mothers, encouraging spiritual sons and daughters. I, I tell you, it, it also, I think, is a reminder of we need to pray how God will use us. I understand this is in, in a context of the apostle and New Testament time, but look at the broader reality and the broader implication. Are you living? Are you thankful? Are you expressing thankfulness? Are you walking in prayer to the people that have impacted you? Are you praying for the body of Christ? Again, you know, there's so many ways we could form prayers in response to this passage, but, but are you cherishing these special relationships? Are you praying for them? Are you encouraging them? Are you looking for ways to be a brother, be a sister in the Lord to them? So as we move through the book of 2 Timothy, I'm excited because even though this is written as one of the pastoral epistles, it's going to be filled with truth that we all can grab onto. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reality of the power of the gospel. And I pray that, that we would live in light of, of, of these realities. I pray we would see that this is true only because Christianity is true in Christ. And I pray we would live and we would learn what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk with you, what it means to live in light of who Jesus is. It's in Jesus' name we pray.